Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. My name is Eric Veith. I'm going to be flying solo today. John Simon will, of course, be back with us on future episodes. But I have two guests here, Roger Whitler and Ann Chambers. They are from the Missouri Lawyers Assistance Program. The acronym is MOLAP. And they're here to talk about a number of issues of interest to lawyers. So welcome, Roger and Ann, to the podcast. Good morning, Eric. Hi, it's good to be here, Eric. I really like your quote on the MOLAP site. Some of the toughest battles are not in court. That's pretty good. Why don't you start with Ann? Tell us a little bit about your background and what your job is at MOLAP and a little bit about your background. Sure. Well, my name is Ann Chambers. Culturally, I'm a Cajun. I grew up in South Louisiana in a small city and uh, went to LSU, picked up a bachelor's degree in psychology there, then a master's in social work. And I moved to Missouri in 1990 and became licensed in clinical social work in 1992. So my title is Ann Chambers, comma, LCSW for Licensed Clinical Social Worker, Director, Missouri Lawyers Assistance Program. But most people just call me Ann. Roger, your turn. Yeah, my name's Roger Whitler, and I'm a uh, clinical mental health counselor for MOLAP. I uh, grew up in Jefferson City, Missouri, served on the highway patrol for 31 years, and retired in 2018. Started working for MOLAP in uh, March of 2019. I uh, went to graduate school at UMSL in St. Louis. Off your website, let me just read this. MOLAP is a professional, confidential counseling program designed to serve members of the Missouri Bar. We seek to help lawyers, judges, law students, and families of members with concerns that impact personal or professional well-being. We address a wide variety of issues such as depression, substance use, stress, burnout, marital issues, family conflict, grief, and emotional or work-related matters. That's a, a broad mission. This might seem upside down, but the word confidential jumps out at me because there's a lot of lawyers out there that might want to reach out, but they're nervous because they don't want it to lead to something else, or they think that it might be somehow a connection to disciplinary committees of some sort. Could either or both of you talk a little bit about the importance of the confidentiality factor in what you do? We are a member service of the Missouri Bar, so we serve any current members of the bar, bar applicants, retired members, and law students. As far as confidentiality, there's a whole one-page confidentiality statement on our website. If anyone's interested, you can go to mobar.org front slash MOLAP and then click on information for clients and all the nitty-gritty details are there. But the long and short of it is we don't release any information about anyone in touch with our program unless someone is threatening to harm or kill themselves or somebody else like right now and we can't talk them out of it or someone is calling to report child abuse or elder abuse. Roger and I are licensed mental health professionals and therefore mandated reporters of those things. So someone calls and you know wants to confess to child abuse or senior abuse we have to notify the relevant state agency to look into those matters and we go over that with everybody the first time that they call. So it's pretty simple. No information leaves our program unless someone specifically signs a consent to release information about themselves to another person. One of the other things that jumps out as a preliminary matter that, that seems very important, 
the services are offered at no cost to attorneys as a service to the Missouri Bar. Right, yeah. We provide uh, a range of services, and the creation of MOLAB specifically is to support members of the Missouri Bar and their families. So with the hope of giving any lawyer who feels that they need help, that lift that they need to get back into practice and do the work that they do. What are the main reasons that lawyers reach out to MOLAP? The most common issue historically has been substance concerns. That was initially followed by marital family concerns, and then usually followed by depression. In recent years, that scatter has started to move around a little bit. Last year, the most common concern was depression. That was 27% of the people that were in touch with us reported that that was their primary concern. The second concern was substance concerns. That was 24% of the pie. And the third most common area was other mental health concerns, which is usually anxiety or other kinds of mental health issues. And this year with COVID-19, we're seeing a little bit of an uptick in anxiety and depression. It would be hard to believe if COVID was not affecting lawyers. It's certainly affecting everyone. The general concerns that most people have related to COVID-19 certainly are similar with attorneys. There's the anxiety about the economy. You know, what's that going to mean for my job? For example, solo attorneys are paying close attention to their bottom lines. Firms are paying attention to their bottom lines. So economic security is a concern. Other pop-up concerns that we're seeing certainly are, I'm worried about this disease. I'm worried about getting it. I am alone and struggling with social distancing or how do I protect myself? How do I protect my family, you know, having a loved one who has been ill or is dealing with a chronic illness that you're concerned about them and protecting them. So there are health and caregiver issues that are also popping up, but economically is one concern. Um, if you're working from home, there's less pressure to, to report to the office during the day. And so substance concerns may be a little less likely to pop up and have an impact in the office or to be noticed. For example, if you're single, living alone and drinking from the house. So sometimes people are like, hey, I want to get sober. Um, sometimes family issues are popping up where couples are socially distancing and um, the house is full of other relatives. So sometimes people start to have struggles with either coping within the family, educating their children um, through online methods while trying to work. So those are some of the popped up issues. Some attorneys speak out about the fact that they've got the work to do, but it's just hard to get themselves to do it at home. That's a challenge uh, so many people are facing. Working at home, if you did not have any distractions, would still potentially be a challenge. But when you're living in a house with a lot of other people who have needs while you're trying to practice law, that would seem to be a, a very difficult situation, especially children. You're trying to tend to your kids who are working at a distance, going to school. Could you walk us through how contact with a new lawyer proceeds? Each call is different. An attorney or an attorney's family member will call in and we'll ask for their bar number or the attorney in the family's bar number so that we can kind of document that we provided services on their behalf. Then, you know, we talk about uh, what's happening in that person's life. We develop a relationship, hopefully, that we can work together. Once we figure out what the issue is, then graduate school and mental health counseling uses acronyms such as LED, which are life events and difficulties. So what is that difficulty? And then we move forward and we try to make a deal that we're going to walk the path hand in hand and try to discover where this 
life events and difficulty originates and how we can lessen the symptoms or the difficulty or the distress that's being caused by it. We'll work with them. And if we can't find together some type of uh, relief from the personal distress or solution to the problem at hand, we have resources that uh, we refer to as our resource directory, which is specialists, inpatient facilities, and other providers who we can refer them to. Being an attorney is a stressful profession. What are the numbers as far as substance abuse and depressions? American Bar Association's Commission on Lawyer Assistance Programs did a a nationwide survey of practicing attorneys, and it was published in 2016. There were, I believe, around 14,000 or so attorneys that completed the uh, survey. And of those attorneys, about one in five, a little over 20%, reported experiencing um, a level of drinking that was considered hazardous harmful or potentially alcohol dependent. Most of the folks that were drinking in the hazardous or risky zone were on the lower end of that scale. Folks that were not necessarily aware that their drinking was either becoming problematic or at risk of becoming problematic. There were about 28% of the attorneys reported experiencing symptoms consistent with depression. And about one in five, so It was 19 or 20% reported experiencing anxiety, and about 23% reported stress. People were asked kind of when did they notice these concerns. With substance concerns, the most common answer was, I noticed that this was an issue within my first 15 years of practice. Second most common answer was, I noticed it during law school. And so it looked like the younger, newer lawyers seemed to be at the greater risks. It seemed that as age and years of experience in the field increased, stress and anxiety scores tended to decrease. And studies have shown, not specifically of attorneys, but of people in general, that some people get help for a substance concern up to almost 10 years after the concern has been there. Oftentimes people kind of ponder and begin to address it. I think a lot of us have a mindset that we feel alone. We feel like we're doing battle all by ourselves against the world, but those statistics are stunning. And should, if they do anything, tell lawyers out there, you're not alone. There's, there's a lot of people that are facing these issues. And like Ann said, the substance abuse problems can be there and they can linger. But when we want them to consider overcoming the stigma, then we have to first acknowledge that you know, lawyers themselves are are in the business of advising. So we want to empower them. And sometimes the fact that you seek assistance, you may interpret as a weakness of your ability to be a good advisor. We try to make sure we let them know that reaching out to us is a courageous thing to do and a smart thing to do when you're facing difficulties. There's a phrase in recovery called better than ever. It's about the idea of really just the joy and thriving. So I would say that while people fear sometimes reaching out, being happy and healthy gives you more time and more freedom to give to others. And so sometimes taking care of yourself is a gift that you can actually give to your clients, your family, and yourselves. And I think, you know, in the end, we kind of owe it to ourselves to take good care of ourselves and to be kind to ourselves as well as each other. And so I would say you don't have to really go it alone or gut it out solo. If you're not feeling like you're living your best life, reaching out for help is the smartest move that you can make or accepting help if somebody else reaches out to you. 
could you break down the substance addiction issue into types of substances that are the most troublesome? Generally speaking, alcohol is probably the most commonly abused substance by attorneys. Other commonly used substances, uppers, so amphetamines, downers, things that impact mood are also common, some pot, some opioids. What is your uh, general approach to alcohol addiction? First, you meet the client where they're at. I like to get some information on the frequency and volume of substance use. What are we using? How long have we been using? What's the impact on your life? physically, emotionally, mentally, work-wise, legally, health-wise, or otherwise, what has the person done on their own to try to address the concern? Sometimes people will say, try to go without drinking for 30 days and then start resuming it and use uh, goes up. Sometimes the person has never addressed the concern before, and sometimes they've had multiple efforts. So I'll try to get a history of treatment. I'll get a history of 12-step support, other support, and get a sense of what their they think that their needs are. If it looks like a rehab is indicated or if outpatient is indicated, we'll talk about different options. We'll also talk about peer support. Would that attorney like to get connected with a volunteer, someone to walk with them through this journey? Those kinds of things. I'm, I'm thinking about COVID again, I'm, and I'm hoping that someday we'll be back to some version of normal. What are some strategies that you've offered people who want to cut back or stop, but they want to be with people and people want to be with alcohol generally? I like the cognitive model, which says, you know, intellectually, a person that has experience with alcohol, intellectually, they know what it's going to do. They know that one or two drinks is going to make them feel a certain way. Three or four is going to make them feel a little bit, you know, enhanced in that same direction that they were going. But five, six, seven, eight or nine drinks is going to numb them pretty badly and cause them to make mistakes and fall into the difficulties that they are well aware of. So then, you know, we we try to make sure that they understand themselves when they go to these events and, and that they intellectually evaluate, you know, what's the value of drinking? What's the uh, possible consequences of allowing myself to do something that I know is not in my best interest? I think it's also helpful um, in early recovery to consider, do you need support? And so, for example, where are you going? What are the circumstances under which you drink? With whom do you drink? Do you have certain drinking buddies at wherever you are? I think there's kind of a risk assessment that people need to do. And sometimes it's arriving late, leaving early, not going, going somewhere else, making plans to do something different. So, for example, inviting a sober friend or going with someone who knows that you are sober now to that event so that you have built-in support, planning to call a sponsor before or after that event. Sometimes it's, what am I going to do instead? You know, if my habit was to drink vodka, am I going to order something different? I have a colleague who often said that, you know, oftentimes people are kind of concerned at social events, mostly with themselves, and they're not really paying as much attention to what's in your glass. So if you, you know, hang a lemon strip or an orange strip off the side of your glass and keep that water flowing or that tonic water flowing or whatever it is, it's fairly unlikely that anybody else is really going to even ask. Learning some refusal skills of how are you going to decline an invitation to drink gracefully, you know, is certainly something that is often discussed early on in recovery. And so there are ways to deal with that. 
maybe we'll switch gears to depression and anxiety. Can you give us an idea of how you identify underlying causes or what, what the typical course of, of counseling would be in these cases? I think one of the questions is often, what are the things that cause you the most anxiety? So are there specific triggers or circumstances? Are you having panic attacks, full-on panic attacks or not? Are there other medical conditions that seem to be playing into this? What are your thoughts and physical sensations around the times that you're experiencing anxiety? So kind of assessing what's going on with the person is certainly important. There are some different strategies and methods um, that people will often use for coping with anxiety. Mindfulness is one strategy. Cognitive behavioral therapy is another where you're looking at the thoughts, you're looking at the behaviors, you're looking at reactions. Progressive relaxation is something that some people find helpful. There are a variety of strategies for some people considering medication or having a consult with their doctor. Sometimes people need to get a physical evaluation. They haven't seen a doctor in a long time, and there may be something else that's going on. You know, some people, they say they're depressed, but we find out that they're not depressed. They're just tired. They're just working too much. And some people say they're anxious, and they're really just on guard because they've got a big case that's coming up. You know, anxiety and depression are both things that are abnormal. It's not normal anxiety because there's no real threat. And it's not normal depression because you're not really depressed. We try to find out if there's distorted thoughts about everything being negative. Everything's going to be a failure. Do you believe that you're defective in some way? Or do you believe that the future is bad or going to be bad? Because in order to, to go through depression, a person has to have some area in which we can detect some distorted thought that is constantly negative, that constantly keeps them in that mood state. And, and we also talk about the fact that depression, anxiety, those are mood disorders. So mood disorders are, are temporary states, we call them, whereas uh, personality disorders like schizophrenia, other types of psychotic disorders are personality disorders, which are traits. So a state is temporary, a trait is permanent. So we try to help them to understand that, you know, if you can go into this, you can get out of it and empower them in that way. One interesting thing about the practice of law, people are being basically hired for their ability to identify risk and to assess risk and to sometimes recognize potential problems and solve them before they ever happen. So people are coming to you either because there is a problem or because they want to avoid a problem and they're looking at you to help them solve it. So you're dealing with a lot of strong emotions in many cases and a lot of times people's emotional pain. And so over the years, kind of that idea of assessing risk can cause people to develop the view that, you know, the world's a pretty dark place because you're dealing with other people's problems all the time. Or, you know, if you're a divorce lawyer, marriage is pretty rough and it can start to filter into other areas of life. So we'll look at kind of what are the, what are the accurate risks? What are realistic? But attorneys sometimes are kind of perfectionistic people. You're highly verbal, highly literate and have these big, healthy brains. And so you're you're really good at assessing risk. And so sometimes choosing when to turn that off because you're so often flexing that pessimistic muscle becomes a challenge over time. So that may be an additional concern for attorneys. There's also the burden of confidentiality. You're carrying very, very heavy secrets and the work that you're doing really does affect people's lives. And so sometimes that sense of responsibility can lead people to believe that caring for themselves is there's not enough time. There's no, no way that I can do that. Or if I have any personal 
challenge, then that means something bad about me. So that kind of blend of pessimism and perfectionism can start to make it harder for people to kind of recognize that it's okay to get help. You know, the language of depression sort of tells you that you're a failure and that you're no good and that things are this way, things are never going to get better. And my goodness, if you reached out for help, everybody would know about it. And they would think you're just a terrible person. And that's not really true, but that's the language of depression. It's sort of like this big dog that comes and sits on your chest and it's just a real weight. Yeah. There's like an internal dialogue that the conversation and person is having with themselves that is constantly gloomy and uh, doesn't actually see a large cachet of evidence. And I always like to tell attorneys that, you know, you may have evidence that things are bad, but are you are you looking at the evidence that things are really good? And I say, why don't you switch hats and not be an attorney and be a judge so you can see both sides of the case? I mean, you've got a family that loves you, for instance, and you're never happy. So uh, what's going on there? Don't you appreciate that? What are your general approaches to someone who just feels overwhelmed that there's not enough hours in a day? That's pretty common. But if someone's really overwhelmed, we can start with what are your main concerns and what do you have to get done today and ways to cope when you're feeling overwhelmed. We'll talk a little bit about self-care oftentimes. And I like to kind of talk to people about stress management, you know, building a long-term self-care routine, the importance of taking breaks and vacations. And if someone's kind of overwhelmed and been procrastinating, I've got a couple of sessions that I may focus on just how do I get my work flowing again? If you're just so overwhelmed and you're sort of locked up and you can't concentrate, how to kind of start addressing that and working your way through. And then we'll start to, once they start to make movement with getting work kind of flowing again or other things flowing again, then starting to address some of the additional concerns. Now, if they're already in a crisis, we deal with crisis first and then deal with those issues. But overwhelmed is pretty common kind of a concern. And I find that two-factor model is, is present there. How come you are overwhelmed? Why is it that you have all of this allocated time dedicated for work? What is the potential intervention that we could have that might help this? And sometimes it's simple. It's as simple as communication. You know, we find out that you're sticking your head in the sand and you're working all the time, but you're not talking to people enough. But oftentimes I find that uh, the attorney has never spoken to their to their boss and said, hey, I'm overwhelmed. And once they do that, then boss almost always understands. So I know you've heard this term of well-being. Maybe maybe you can help me with a some sort of definition or approach of what that might mean in a very general sense to, to the two of you. To me, you know, well-being means it means a well-rounded life that is really centered on all the components that can be addressed in terms of self-care. So well-being, for instance, is, is to consider that and to monitor that and to monitor those aspects of your life where you may be able to serve your, your own best interest in terms of your health in a better way. And, you know, from our conversation before about, you know, where do you find the hours in the day? If you can't take care of yourself, then your work is going to suffer anyway. We've always used a metaphor that when you're driving a fire truck, don't drive too fast because your job is to put the fire out. If you crash on the way there, you'll never get to the fire. 
there is actually a resource that's available to anybody. It's free and that really kind of focuses on well-being toolkit. It's called the well-being toolkit for lawyers and legal employers. If you Google that, it will pop up. And they say there's about six different dimensions of lawyer well-being. And so it's kind of different aspects of your life. So occupational, so work-related, that idea of how are you growing professionally and in your career, whether you're satisfied with the work that you do, recognizing how work improves or enriches your life, having financial stability. So that kind of falls under the work bubble. Another aspect is that intellectual bubble. So that area of learning and sharpening and honing your skills, having an intellectual challenge, which often lawyers really love. That's part of what draws people to the profession. Having good concentration and being able to focus on what you're doing, whether it's work or play, not being preoccupied by other things. There's the physical aspect. So feeling physically okay, or managing any health conditions that you have, um, nourishing yourself well. So a lot of taking care of yourself falls in there, minimizing the use of addictive substances, getting help for your physical health when you need it, those kind of things. The social aspect, so having connection with your friends, with family, with others, having people that you can count on in your life, whether it's coworkers or others, and being a sense of community, giving back to or contributing to community or society. So having a sense of purpose, the emotional well-being, managing powerful emotions in a way that you feel like you're a good decision maker, those kinds of things. Um, getting help for your mental health if or when you need it, which is something that people are really kind of paying attention to right now, particularly with COVID-19. Stress management is really important and people are eager to get resources around it. And then there's that spiritual aspect of life, feeling a sense of meaning or purpose in your work or in your life and thinking about where you get that and what gives you satisfaction. So kind of being well-rounded and feeling like you're thriving to me is part of that well-being or feeling like you're content with things as they are, even in the middle of hardship. Let's talk about occupation. Why are you a lawyer? Does that come up in your, in your counseling? And what's a good way to approach that kind of an issue? In the occupational area, I think it's important to think about what are your favorite tasks and what are the things that you're really the best at? So sometimes there's a misfit between what I like and what's the most profitable. Sometimes we're living for that, our favorite two hours of the day. So could you do more of that? Or are you doing too much of the tasks that you really hate? Do you need to, to refer some of those elsewhere? Or do you need to get more mastery on some skills that you're not as comfortable with? And so sometimes people really need to look at making a shift or making a change. Other times, just kind of fine-tuning those kinds of things. A very important distinction, I think, Eric, is that career counseling is mental health counseling. You know, they're just intertwined. And uh, sometimes people want to, you know, kind of distance themselves from the uh, cause of their dilemma or their distress, but it's always got something to do with uh, career. There are many of these moments where something happens to kind of wake you up and then you're kind of like up out of the water looking around and trying to figure out, okay, this is a new thing. And it's not always a bad thing, right? I mean, it might feel like a bad thing, like how dare life intrude and challenge me to rethink what, who I am and what I'm supposed to be doing. But uh, there's often great opportunities at these moments too, right? Right. The, the situation happens and how you respond to it is important. I coach uh, tennis part-time. So 
a player comes off the court and they're crying and they're despondent about uh, the way they played and so forth. And one approach is to say, you know, I'm here to comfort you. Or the other is to say, I'm here to challenge you. And so we try to empower our clients to to not see these difficult situations as as a way for them to avoid, but to face it head on and become empowered to manage it and do everything they can to continue to be strong and move forward. I also find that there's moments where sometimes you might be feeling abused by life, that you're the you're kind of the victim of circumstances. It seems like a good strategy for me anyway is to reframe it and to get your head back into the case and and think of it as in terms of you are you are helping your client, you are serving a client that this profession is really about relationships and trying to help someone who's in distress. Do you find that, that that's something that comes up occasionally that it might be a matter of reframing as opposed to changing things wholesale? Yes, there's a strengths-based perspective where basically the idea is we look at what are our assets and what we're bringing to the table and also having that sense of what's our overall mission? You know, what do we hope to accomplish in our career? Is it I am a person who helped a thousand clients or I am a person who helped people get a fair shake at trial or I stand for justice and relentless pursuit of it? And so how do some of these tasks fit into that? Are these tasks necessary for that goal or are these tasks things that I just need to do to sort of keep those clients flowing to get paid? You know, sometimes it's I need to do my billing because I need to put food on the table. And if I don't have food on the table, then I starve and, you know, we close. So just kind of helping people reframe what are the purposes here and what are what are my focuses. Whenever we are going through life's highs and lows, we need to monitor ourselves and make sure we're looking at all the evidence, paying attention. And it, and it does. Sometimes it tires you out because... We use a term called cognitive complexity, and that is trying to monitor all the different aspects which may be contributing to a certain feeling, emotion, or problem or situation. But realizing that your client has confidence in you and realizing that your community has confidence in you, the judge, the court, other attorneys, the bar and the Supreme Court and all the organizations that lawyers make up, they all have a stake in that reputation and in that uh, work that's presented. So I think that's important that you mention that because I, I do talk with a lot of attorneys about this idea of what all is impacted by your decisions. What are your thoughts about the importance of physical health in terms of uh, overall well-being? I don't think we can really separate our head and our heart from the rest of our body. We are the total package, and so we have to kind of pay attention to taking care of our body. So I think it's important to kind of consider, like, what am I feeding myself, both in terms of food, but also what am I feeding myself emotionally, you know? Is it garbage in, garbage out, or am I feeding myself things that are going to help me feel whole? and feel better. Disconnecting from the news for 30 minutes or walking around the neighborhood when we're physically restless so that we can concentrate more. I think those things are important parts of physical well-being. Research has shown that um, getting regular exercise can help decrease the severity of depression and anxiety. It doesn't solve everything, but it can help sometimes dial down the force of those challenges. It's not the only treatment, but it's a helpful addition to the treatment. 
I picked this tip up from Gina Cho. Uh, she has said that oftentimes we tend to sort of clench up when we're reading our emails and we stop breathing and that can trigger our fight or flight syndrome. I try to breathe slowly and deeply before I pick up the phone or make a stressful call. And it is important, I think, to kind of pay attention to soothing our bodies when we're under stress. I've been following the uh, research on what's called the Harvard study began in 1938, where the researchers tracked 268 Harvard sophomores. 1938, there's still 19 of them alive. <laughs> and they, it's the longest longitudinal study they've ever done. And one of the take-homes from this study is this, close relationships, more than money or fame, are what keep people happy throughout their lives. Those ties, those social ties, protect people from life's discontents. They help to delay mental and physical decline, and they're better predictors of long and happy lives than social class, IQ, or even genes. That finding proved true across the board among both Harvard men and inner city participants. That's a pretty strong statement. There's also research that having a close connection is valuable for employee retention. So the idea of just being involved with your coworkers, you know, having a friend at work, having a sense of support, having a mentor can play into retention. It matters a lot. I think part of being rounded is having a sense of meaning and purpose in general versus just in one specific area. Career is a big basket for many of us. You know, if you stop and think about who am I, many times we will answer I am a insert career stuff. But who else are we? What else are we? And what draws us? You know, where do we draw our sense of meaning and, and satisfaction? I think it's important to have couple of baskets to sustain us long term. Sometimes we have too much on our to-do lists. I have kind of become a fan of simplifying things down. I used to keep logs of what all I did with all of my time on the job, and it was kind of overwhelming. And I learned, well, I do a lot of things, but it can be kind of stressful. Some people get a lot of satisfaction of scratching out that item on the to-do list, and I can totally relate to that. But if your to-do list is three pages long, it's too much. You know, if you can't find an evening where you don't have anything scheduled, it might be time to slow down a little bit. And so I, I try to talk with people about what do you want to do both today at work and elsewhere. So for me, I kind of believe that it's a good idea each day to do one thing that's important, that matters to you at work, and that's a priority. And also think about is there something that you want to do at home and to have a routine to let go of the stress of work. So whether that's kind of thinking, I've done all that I can related to this case today before you click X and close out those files or to mentally wish that client well, or to decide I have done a good job today, I've done all I could, now it's time for me to stand down and hopefully come at this case with more ideas tomorrow. So kind of thinking about not just what am I doing with my time, but how am I going to kind of stand down and rest easy so that I can hit my work tomorrow with refreshed eyes and refreshed energy. It's hard sometimes to know whether to think about my life as a marathon or a sprint, because it seems like it's both. And if you're not careful, you're sprinting to exhaustion 
of course. And it's, there's a balance. It's hard to know where to find that balance sometimes. What are some things that you can do to kind of refresh and revitalize yourself during those times of busyness or professionally during those times of burnout? So, you know, because when we have, when our cup runs empty and we don't have anything left to give, and we feel dry, that's really a hard place to be. And we can go through that. It's important to kind of put those drops of self-care in that bucket from time to time so that that well is not just empty and we're not running on fumes because, you know, I imagine most of us have been stranded on the side of the road at least a time or two in our lives before, um, you know, we realize it's important to kind of watch that fuel gauge. So I think kind of taking time to replenish is just as helpful as keeping that to-do list always going. Well, this has been a great session. Maybe a, a good way to end it would be to let you each make your uh, mini closing argument on uh well-being. Uh, do you have something that comes to mind that you maybe some just overall advice? My overall advice would be to monitor for themselves, monitor their thoughts, monitor the evidence and look at everything broadly. You know, understand those people who care about you and support you as well as understand those people who criticize you. But don't just pay attention to the ones that criticize and don't just pay attention to the ones that praise you. Pay attention to everything. Be a judge, not a lawyer on one side of the case, but be a judge and look at everything. When you don't have time to exercise, is it just because you're tired? Can you ask the question, would exercise make me have more energy? And oftentimes they'll say, yes, it would. So uh, if tired is an excuse, then exercise is actually the remedy. So again, I just ask that they look at everything uh, intellectually, look at their thoughts and monitor those and treat themselves with generosity. Be generous to ourselves. Other people would not hold the same things against us sometimes that we hold against ourselves. Again, if if I make a mistake, uh, how much do I have to pay for that? If you were to rob a bank and you get 20 years in prison, you serve your time. But if you make a mistake on a brief that you file in court, how long are you going to beat yourself up over that? Great. Anne, what are your thoughts? I would say today is always a good day to be kind to yourself. If you're really interested in tracking the lawyer well-being movement, Missouri is going to have a lawyer well-being task force. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops over time. The planning is beginning. And so that's going to be cool. There are lots of cool tools on the website lawyerwellbeing.net, which tracks the lawyer well-being movement. It's got some articles there. And the MOLAP site at mobar.org front slash molap has some informational articles related to well-being and um, also personal concerns. So I would say be kind to yourself. The easiest way to contact the Missouri Lawyer Assistance Program is to call the 1-800 number. It is 1-800-688-7859. That phone number is available 24-7. I'm in the office between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m., and the phone rings to me wherever I am. Roger is in the office between usually 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. My direct number, if you want to just reach me individually, is 573-638-2262. Roger, what's your individual number? 573-638-2266. Due to the COVID pandemic and a lot of people working remotely, there is now a virtual portal that we can communicate with people through. 
it's a doxy.me portal. And if anybody wants to do a face-to-face session, but virtually, we have that feature that's available. Just give us a call and we can set that up. We also have uh, connections with volunteers for peer support. So if anybody is wanting to talk to someone in a similar area of recovery, if you get a hold of Roger or I, we can offer that kind of support as well. All right. Thank you so much. So this has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Beeth. I'll be back with John Simon with another episode soon. So hope to see you then. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.